It's, uh, as I said, a great privilege to be here this morning. One of the great joys about visiting other churches is uh, you often run into uh, old friends and, and people you didn't expect. So it's fun, uh, just even this morning, being able to bump into some people that I've worshipped with before and uh, fellowship with before, and then even, uh, I think some of your visitors this morning are good friends of mine. So that's just a, a wonderful thing that can happen uh, when you visit other churches. A- and it's a great reminder for me, and hopefully for you, that there are other churches trying to do the same thing we are, right? We're not alone in uh, even this city or this county or this province, this country, this world in trying to seek the Lord, right? My home church, South Shore, started at 10 a.m. They're doing the exact same thing we are now. Pastor Jody is standing up and he's preaching and sharing the word as I am for you this morning. Uh, So hopefully that's uh, an encouragement to you that there are other people out there doing the same thing that we are together. This morning we're going to spend our time in the book of Exodus, which is one of my favorites. Uh, If you've got your Bible with you, you can turn to Exodus chapter 6. That's where we're going to spend our time. And the big question we're going to ask this morning, the idea we're going to address is, is that God desires to be known by His people. It's one of the fundamental things we observe all throughout the Bible. I read one commentator recently said, if I was to sum up the whole Bible... You could say that, that the Bible is communicating and showing us that God desires to be known. That's one thing we could say the Bible is all about. And we see it all through the way God works and in who God is. We even sang about it this morning. Uh, we said, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. And that whole song is saying all of these things that God has made... The the earth, the heavens, and everything in it is there to tell us who He is. And Romans 1 tells us the very same thing, right? His very creation gives evidence of His existence and His care. But we don't just have His creation. We also have His self-revelation, right? The Bible, we call it the Word of God. And that's not just like a catchy phrase. That, That means what it says, right? This is God's Word. He spoke it to us, that we may know who He is and what He has done. So, He's given us creation, He's given us His Word, and ultimately, He has sent His Son, right again, for the purpose that He would be known by the work of the Son of God. All of these things, His creation, His Word, His Son, are all given to us that we might know who God is, right? That we might place our faith in Him, that we might worship Him. So fundamentally, we can say that God desires to be known, and He demonstrates that in many, many ways. Nowhere is that more clear than in Exodus chapter 6, and that's where we're going to hang out this morning. In particular, we see this happening, God expressing His desire to be known as He calls His people out of Egypt and seeks to make a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. The problem of the book of Exodus is the very same one of this world. The people don't know who God is, right? We look around us and we say, look at this world. Like this, people just need Jesus. And the story in Exodus was very much the same. The people knew who God was enough to cry out to him, say, God, we are enslaved. Will you rescue us? But they didn't know who he was enough to obey him. You know, when they, when they get out of Egypt finally and they cross the Red Sea, you know what the very first thing God has to tell the people of Israel to do through Moses? 
He says, all right, I've rescued you. We've done these ten plagues. We've been weeks and months of you watching me work out this with Egypt and redeem you with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, bring these curses against them, and I saved you. The very first thing you need to do now that we're in the wilderness and you're following me is all those idols you brought with you of the false gods of Egypt, you actually need to get rid of those now, right? They knew who he was enough to beg him for salvation, but not enough to worship him rightly. So a major plot line of Exodus is God working through Moses and in the people of Israel so that they would know who he is. In the book of Exodus in particular, God says 15 different times, variations on the phrase, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 15 times. He says it to Moses. He says, Moses, I'm doing this through you so you will know who I am. He says it to Israel. Israel, I'm doing all these things so you will know that I am the Lord. And he says to Egypt, I am doing all of these things, all of these curses, all of this judgment, so that you will know that I am the Lord. And he says it to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I am doing all these things, so you will know that I am the Lord. And ultimately, he tells Moses, he says, I'm doing all of this, so that all of the nations, the whole world, will know that I am the Lord. Because ultimately, God desires to be known. So before I read our text in Exodus 6, let me just place us within the book of Exodus. Where are we in the story? Exodus chapter 6 comes right after God uh, sends Moses to meet with Pharaoh for the first time. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, okay, Pharaoh, the God of Israel wants you to let his people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is this God? Why would I let these people go? I don't know the God of the Hebrews. And he rejects his request. Instead, what he says is the people of Israel have time to think about going off into the wilderness and following their God. Clearly, they're not working hard enough. So the people of Egypt are no longer going to gather the straw for the people of Israel to make bricks. Instead, you have to gather the straw and you still have to make the same number of bricks. Their workload is much increased. In response to this, of course, the people of Israel turn to Moses and say, like, what are you doing? You just made this so much worse. Why couldn't you just leave well enough alone? We were okay. We were just making bricks. Now we've got to gather straw and wander all over the land and gather this thing and put it all together. We have to work many more hours and much harder. You have made our enslavement worse. And the way the narrative writes, you you see this scene where Moses is coming out from Pharaoh's palace and the people, it's almost as if they're right at the bottom of the steps and they hear what he says and then they just blast him for screwing all this up. And the way the narrative goes, there's no real break in the action. Moses speaks to the people and it's as if he turns around immediately and says, Lord, like, what are you doing? It's right in the moment. He turns right from from the people to God and says, you have made this so much worse. And this is where we get to Exodus chapter 6. The Lord responds to Moses, and he tells him exactly who he is and what he is doing. And for the first time, Moses doesn't interrupt him as the Lord explains his purposes. So with that said, we'll uh, read from our text. I don't know if it's your habit or not, but it's how sure we stand together as we read the words. I would invite you to do that this morning with me. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 2. 
God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as, as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. This passage is at a crucial moment of the story. Moses is panicked. The people are panicked. God, what are you doing? You have made this so much worse. And God speaks to Moses because the only way that he is going to be able to work through Moses and through the people of Israel is if they understand who he is and what he's doing. And that is exactly what God communicates here to them. And he tells them this in a couple of ways. Not just in the things that he says, the content of his words, but he also is communicating in the way he has organized and structured this little speech to Moses. So we're going to see three things as we work through our text together that are crucial for knowing God, which again is ultimately his purpose. The first thing we'll see is that we need to know his name. The second thing is that we need to know his works And the third thing is that we need to know his faithfulness. First, know his name. The very first thing comes from both the the content and the structure of the passage. So the Lord says his name, right? I am the Lord, right? It's not a trick. That part's pretty easy. But did you notice how many times he said it? As I was reading through, verse 2, I am the Lord. Verse 6, I am the Lord. Verse 8, I am the Lord. In the Old Testament in particular, and in just any, any written form all through the Bible, repetition is one of the tools that the biblical authors use to emphasize things, right? Repetition is like bolding or underlining. So if you were sending somebody an email, which I guess applies to people over 30 now, because people under 30 don't do that anymore, Can you bold in text messages and instant messages and things? You probably can. You know what bolding is. If you're sending somebody an email and you want to emphasize something, you might bold a word or underline. That exact same thing happens here when the biblical authors and the Lord repeat something. This is important, so I'm going to say it again. That applies when you say something twice. If you say it a third time, it's really, really important. It's like doing bold and underline, right? How much more can I emphasize this? Maybe all caps and bold and underline. 
This is an important thing. So the Lord says it three times. Not only does he say it three times, and I'm going to go a little bit Bible nerd for a moment here, the Lord says it three times in something called a chiastic pattern, which if you are a Bible nerd is an exciting word to you. If you're not, I'm going to tell you what it means. A chiastic pattern is another tool that biblical authors use to communicate emphasis. So the same way repetition communicates emphasis, or bolding or underlining communicates emphasis, the way you structure your words and your speech can also emphasize things. So a chiastic pattern is designed to emphasize the thing that happens in the middle of the pattern. So the easiest example of a chiastic pattern, we're going to go outside the book of Exodus for a minute, is the story of Noah and Noah's Ark. So the the flood part of the narrative begins with Noah getting on the ark and the door closes. And then you get this whole story about the waters rising, and he sends out birds, and all these things happen. And then at the end of the story, you actually get the opposite pattern. There's more about birds, the waters recede, and the door opens. So you get Moses, or Noah going in, the door closing, birds and water, and then you get it backwards. Birds and water, waters receding, Noah comes out of the ark. So you get this little pattern. In the middle of the pattern is the thing that matters the most. Does anybody remember what happens in the middle of the story of Noah? The flood has been going on. They're in the boat. They've been there a long time. And what happens that changes the narrative? God remembered Noah. It's a chiastic pattern. It points to the center. We get the exact same thing here, and I think it's handily on the screen, maybe. Oh, there it is. Look at that. It's this little triangle. In God's speech, he says it in a pattern. It's an order, and it goes in one way and then reverses out the other way. The Lord says... I am the Lord. That's the first thing. And it's at the end. I am the Lord. Then he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's the second last thing as well. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he talks about the land of Canaan. That's the third last thing. Then he talks about slavery under the Egyptians. And that's the first thing on the way out. And right in the middle, what's the point of the triangle? I am the Lord. He repeats it three times. It's like bold and underlined. Then he puts it in this chiastic pattern. The whole text points to the middle. I am the Lord. That's the all caps. The most important thing we can take out of what God says here is who he is. We need to know his name. So if you were a Hebrew reader and you heard this speech from the Lord or Moses related to you, this is what you would hear. First and foremost, in bold and underlined in all caps, you would hear, I am the Lord. And the name of God on its own communicates a whole lot. He didn't introduce himself as, I am a God, did he? Is he a Lord? No, he is the Lord. How many lords are there? One. He is the God. And when you live in a world and a culture where there's a pantheon, a multitude of gods who are arm wrestling each other over things, and you have to pray to different ones at different days of the week or based on the weather or what province you're in, it's very complicated. There's hundreds of gods and they're all warring over who's in charge. But not this God. The God of Israel, the God of the Bible is the God. He is the Lord the only one. He also said that I am the God of your forefathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All those stories you heard, all those things that happened, all those 
promises I made to them were from me. The very same God, which also says that I endure. The Lord doesn't go anywhere. He hasn't lost out. He hasn't disappeared. He hasn't been beaten in an arm wrestle by all these Egyptian gods. He is still there. And what does he tell them he will do? I will free you from slavery and redeem you. He says, though you're slaves, though you're subjected to Egypt, though they are bigger and mightier than you and they have lots of gods, I am going to free you. What kind of God can make that kind of promise? It's got to be a big one. It's got to be a powerful one. It's got to be a God mightier than anything Egypt or their gods can muster. But not only is this a powerful God, He also must be a merciful God. What kind of God cares that His people are enslaved? What kind of God hears them cry out amidst their oppression? One that cares. One that loves. One that has mercy. And he tells them that he will take them as his people. He says, I will take you. Who's doing the rescuing in this story? God is. He is the one that will be at work. And the whole purpose, as he says right in the middle, is that you shall know that I am the Lord. What's amazing about how this story continues is what then God does. He works out mighty judgment. He works out a series of plagues. He brings death, destruction, darkness, all kinds of things. And we read that story and we say, look at how amazing God is. Look at what he did. But how often do we wonder, like, why did God work that way? Why is it that the Lord worked out his salvation in Exodus through plagues? It wasn't his only option, right? The Lord did it specifically so he would be known. I'm going to demonstrate my power in a way that cannot be disputed. I'm going to demonstrate and prove that I am the Lord over the gods of Egypt. I am the only God worth worshiping. Because this is not the only way God could have done this. Think ahead in the history of Israel. After they're exiled from the land of Judah and they go into Babylon, how do they come back in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah from Babylon to Jerusalem? Does God bring ten plagues? No. God instates a new king in Babylon who's friendly to the people of Israel, and he says, go back to Jerusalem. Why don't you rebuild your city? Rebuild your temple. God could have done that in Exodus. He could have brought about a Pharaoh who was merciful to the people of of Israel and said, why don't you go back to Canaan? That would be nice. You've done lots of years of slavery for us. You've earned your freedom. But that's not what he does. Because God is working through judgment to bring redemption so that his name would be known. The very first thing about knowing God is knowing his name. The second thing we need to know about God is know His work. Did you notice as we were reading through our text, who is the active person? Who is the one doing things in the exodus of Israel from Egypt? Is it Israel? 
No, if you read Exodus 6 through 2 through 8, they're basically along for the ride. Listen to the verbs. The Lord says, first, I am the Lord. He says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God, and I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession, because I am the Lord. He communicates his work in what he says. He says, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I am going to do. God is the one at work. Not only does he communicate his works in what he says, but also how he says it. Come back to our chiastic pattern with me for a minute. What happens in this pattern is it doesn't just repeat itself on the way in and then on the way out in reverse. It repeats itself. It goes all the way in. We get all the little pieces, right? I am the Lord. I'm the God of Abraham. I promise you the land. I know you're in slavery. I am the Lord. That's how we go into the chiastic pattern. And then on the way out, the Lord says, not only are all these things true, let me show you how I'm going to act on all these things. He says, I know you're in slavery in Egypt. And in response to that, I will redeem you from that slavery. He says, not only did I promise you the land of Canaan, I'm going to bring you there. And it's going to be yours. Because not only am I the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the promises that I made for them I will finally fulfill in you. Everything about our text gets bigger and better the second time around. God says, this is who I am in the first part. Then on the way out, he says, this is what I will do because of who I am in the second part. God responds to all these truths he says of himself, not just by describing who he is, but by doing something. God, by his very nature, is not just existent. He's not just out there, just in the sky, hanging out, doing his thing because he's God. God acts because his nature requires him to act. If he is all-powerful, he exercises his power. If he is sovereign over all things, that sovereignty is at work in everything. If God is merciful, that's not just a theory. He's really merciful. And if you've experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ, you know that it's true for you. His nature means that he is at work. And as we see in this particular story, he sees the weakness of Israel and he responds in strength. He's made promises to them, so he comes to fulfill them. And he is merciful, so he comes to redeem his people. So it's not just sufficient that we know the first thing about God, our first point. It's not enough that we know his name. It's not enough. We also must know what he does. We must know his work. He is the one who delivers, redeems, takes, brings, and gives in our text. And this is true of our salvation in Christ as well, right? It's not enough to know who Jesus is. It's not enough to be able to identify him. Say, yeah, he was a good teacher, I think. He probably lived a while ago. He was probably a real guy. He said some cool stuff. That's not enough. 
Even if you know more and say, yeah, he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. That could be true. Even if you believe and say, yeah, or, or at least affirm the truth that Jesus is indeed God. It's not enough to just say that's true. You've got to believe it. Not just confess, but believe in your heart. And your life must bear out that truth as we live in light of the gospel. As we look at our own salvation, we looked at the story and said, God is the one who's working in the Exodus, right? He did it all. Israel was more or less along for the ride. And for much of our salvation, that is true as well, right? And at South Shore, we're working our way through 1 Peter, and if we go through that book, we can see many references of how God is at work in our salvation. First Peter, uh, Peter writes in his first epistle that our salvation in chapter 1 is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter says that our new birth is according to His great mercy. Peter says that it's the Lord who's called us to holiness. It's the Lord who's ransomed us from our sinfulness and futility. It's God the Father who has raised Christ from the dead, and He has called us to eternal glory in Jesus. Right As we think about our own salvation, how God has worked through Christ to redeem us from sin, we observe the very same thing. It is God the Father who has sent Christ the Son. It is Jesus who went to the cross for us to bear our sin and went to the grave to bury it for us. He rose from the dead that we might know that He is indeed the Son of God. It is the work of Christ that justifies us, that declares us righteous. It is His blood that washes us us that we might be sanctified. It is His work and redemption that confirms and guarantees our inheritance and resurrection with Him. Do we work at our salvation? Yes, absolutely. Is sanctification hard? All the time. But all of it is ultimately the work of Jesus Christ. He is the one at work in our salvation. Sometimes we think about that and we think, that's, that's really difficult. That's hard to accept because I'm a human and I like autonomy, right? I like to be responsible for my own thing. I like to be in charge. I like to have authority over my own life. I want to be the one who makes all the decisions. And the reality is, if we work out our own salvation in its entirety without the work of Christ, we don't have any chance, right? If our salvation, our covenant with God was conditional on our obedience, we don't have any hope. Let me give you an illustration of that reality from the book of Exodus. Remember where the story continues, they wander in the wilderness and they go to Mount Sinai and the Lord gives Moses the law up on the mountain. Gives him the two stone tablets. And then as Moses comes down from the mountain with the stone tablets, what does the Lord tell him is happening in the camp? The people have gotten together and they've convinced Aaron to make a golden calf. This story is so incredible because the people of Israel have just witnessed the mighty work of God. They've just seen him work ten plagues and redeem them from Israel. They literally walked through an ocean with water on either side, like a wall. 
and watched the ocean swallow the armies of Egypt. They went to the mountain and saw the glory of God descend and speak to them in fire and lightning and thunder from the mountaintop. And it scared them so much, they said, Moses, go up there on our behalf, lest we all die because of the glory of God. Moses ascends that mountain. And while he's up there for 40 days, the people make a golden calf. And we look at that story and say, man, like they really just didn't get it, did they? And we, we think we're better than them. But the reality is, that is what working out your salvation on your own, without Christ, looks like. Right? One of John Calvin's most famous quotes is that our hearts are idle factories. And that is so true, Right? If we are without Christ, if we're working at our salvation on our own, 40 days in the wilderness, we will make our own idols. It might not be a golden calf, but we will worship something else. Without the work of Christ, without assurance of salvation through Him, we have no real hope of salvation. It would be better that we would just die in the wilderness. First thing, we need to know His name. Second thing, we need to know His work. And the third thing we need to know about God is His faithfulness. Did you notice the way in which the Lord saves Israel? He doesn't just do it, right? He didn't just work it out without telling them and then say afterwards, oh, hey guys, that was me, right? The Lord makes promises and then they hope in faith in those promises. And then God fulfills His promises. Do you notice the things He promised in our text? There were five of them. He said, I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. Second, He said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Third, I will do this through great acts of judgment. Fourth, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And fifth, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God makes five promises in these few verses. And as you read through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, eventually when you get to Joshua, you get to see God fulfill all five of these things. And it's a lot of books of the Bible, but in history, it's one generation. The people that Moses speaks this to, it's their children who receive the land. God speaks all these things to Moses, and within one generation, God fulfills all of it. Deliverance from slavery really happens clearly in Exodus 14, once they've crossed the Red Sea and the armies of Egypt are swallowed up. Redemption comes in Exodus 13. Redemption requires a payment, right? You purchase to redeem. God pays, He says He pays Egypt in judgment for oppressing His son, Israel. He pours out His judgment in the plagues and pays them to redeem His people. The third thing He promised was judgment, and that certainly comes, as we just said, through the plagues. The fourth thing he promised was a covenantal relationship with Israel. You will be my people. 
I will be your God. And we see that happen in Exodus 24, right? Moses goes up to the mountain. He gives them uh, the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And they make a covenant as a people with the Lord. And if you study that chapter, Exodus 24, you'll notice it actually looks like a marriage ceremony, the way it's described later in the Bible. The covenant between Israel and, and God is meant to look like a marriage, one of enduring covenantal faithfulness. The fifth thing he promised them was the land. You've got to wait all the way to Joshua for this one. There's a lot of wilderness wandering in between here and there. They finally, in Joshua 25, gets there. Joshua, in his final speech, says, The Lord has fought for you. He has given you the land, so serve and obey him. And we get to see in this little pattern of stories how the Lord works with his people. This is promise given, promise fulfilled. This is a pattern that the Lord establishes that we get to see happen over and over through the Scriptures. And these fulfilled promises demonstrate the faithfulness of God, right? If you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you'll remember that the Lord constantly, continually refers to their redemption from Egypt to remind them to be faithful. He says, guys, You're worshiping idols. You're doing all these crazy things. You're intermarrying with people who worship other gods. You're committing adultery. You're not leading the people well. Don't you remember that I saved you from Egypt? I brought you out from the house of slavery. What are you doing? Don't you remember that I am faithful? Here's what's amazing about this pattern about God promising and fulfilling things. It doesn't go away. God keeps doing it. Our salvation in Christ is based on the very same thing. Again, if you like Bible nerd words, the salvation of of Israel from Egypt is typological of our salvation in Christ, meaning it follows the same pattern. The Lord works in the same way. God saved Israel from slavery, literal, physical slavery. How does the New Testament describe our salvation? We are saved from slavery to sin. The Lord redeems His people Israel by payment in judgment. Right? He pours out plagues and death and darkness on Egypt to redeem His people. In the moment of our redemption in Jesus Christ, what does God the Father pour out on His Son? Judgment, death, literal darkness. Third thing, which is captured in the second thing, is judgment. Not only has God poured out judgment on Christ, there is more judgment to come. Right? We expect that when Jesus returns, part of his return, part of establishing his kingdom, is that there will be real and complete judgment. That's a promise. Fourth thing, God promised a covenantal relationship with His people. Their uh, consummation of that relationship looked like a, a marriage ceremony on the top of Mount Sinai. The people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, literally broke bread with God. How is our relationship corporately as the church described? with Christ. Christ is our bridegroom. 
We are the bride of Christ. We enjoy a continuing covenantal marriage-like relationship with God Himself. And we're promised that that will be ultimately fulfilled in something we call the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? It's something we partially enjoy now, but there is a day coming when Christ returns where He will have this ultimate marriage feast in His new creation with His people and will enjoy real and perfect and permanent fellowship with Him. The fifth thing the Lord promised Israel was possession of the land. They got it, at least partially, in Joshua, and we anticipate an inheritance of a real kind in Christ, don't we? We don't really have it now, but what do we look forward to? A new heavens and a new earth. We are called co-inheritors with Christ. We anticipate this eternal inheritance that is prophesied by Isaiah, Peter, and Revelation. The hard part about the promises that God has made to us is that they're not all yet fulfilled, right? We see all five of these fulfilled in Israel by Joshua 25, but we look at these promises for us and we say, okay, we've been delivered from slavery, check. We have received, in Christ, redemption from sin, yes. Some judgment has come, but there is yet more. That's a promise that's not yet fulfilled. We partially enjoy this covenant relationship with God, but that's not complete. That's not perfect. I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy continuous, unbroken, perfect fellowship with God on a daily basis. I am still a sinner. That's a promise that's coming. And the land, Israel got it, but we don't have it yet. That's a promise. Here's what's important for us to see. If God acted faithfully, to fulfill all of these promises for Israel. And He has been faithful to us in fulfilling some of these to this point. We can have faith and confidence in God that He will yet fulfill the things that He has not brought. We don't enjoy perfect fellowship with God, but we can have faith that we will because He's promised it. We don't yet enjoy the new heavens and the new earth, but we can have faith that we will because He's promised it and He's faithful and He demonstrates it over and over and over again. The key thing is that the Lord desires that we would know Him. He said we need to know His name, that we need to know His work, that we need to know His faithfulness. And if we really summarize the Bible by saying the goal and purpose of God ultimately is that He would be known, that's not just about us knowing who He is, right? That can't be an internal, I should know who God is thing. Why did God work the way He did in Exodus? Not just so Moses would know who He is, Not even just so Israel would know who he is, but so Egypt and Pharaoh and all of the nations of the earth would know that the God of the Hebrews was the Lord. He's the one. He's all-powerful. He's the only God. He is merciful. He loves and saves his people. And that is our purpose, right? We call it the Great Commission. Our goal as individual Christians, corporately as a church, 
must be the same as what God's is. We can't be out of alignment with what God is doing in his creation. God wants to be known. It's our job to help make that happen. Through our lives, the way we lived, we demonstrate who Christ is and what he's done for us. Through sharing of the gospel. That doesn't have to be complicated. Somebody asks you what you do on the weekend, do you say you go to church? Right? Somebody asks you what you're up to Wednesday night, do you say I'm going to prayer group? And that's like Christian prayer, we're praying to Jesus. Somebody asks you what you believe or what you think about this world, do you tell them you have hope in Christ? And you don't have to have all the answers. I don't have all the answers, and I do this for a living. There are more questions I can't answer than ones that I can. And people are very gracious to let you have time to answer these things or to come to church with you and and hear the word preached. If God's desire is that he would be known, our desire must be that he would be known. He's going to work this out one way or another. In the same way that Egypt knew that he was the Lord because he brought judgment and ultimately redeemed his people, at the end of all things, everyone who is on this earth or has ever lived on this earth or will ever live on this earth will know that God, that Christ, is the Lord. Every knee will bow on heaven and on earth, under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And those who make that confession are doing it one of two ways. They're doing it in praise to the glory and mercy of God because they know Jesus Christ, because they heard the gospel, because they believe in him for his salvation. Or they're proclaiming those things and it's too late. They didn't know the gospel. But at the end of all things, when God returns, when he shows who he is clearly, perfectly, powerfully, those who do not know Jesus Christ will have no choice but to proclaim that he is the Lord because what else can they do? And they will go with that proclamation on their lips to judgment. Their only hope is to know the Lord, is to know his name, is to know his works, and to know his faithfulness. With that word from Exodus chapter 6, would you just pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the clarity that you give us. Lord, your word, your, the, what you've given us in your holy word is not a secret. You're not trying to hide things from us. You make it so clear that you desire to be known. You've given us your creation that shouts your name. You've given us your word that proclaims the gospel truth. You've given us your son who works to redeem and save us. And you've called us all through your scriptures, through the gospels, through the words of Jesus Christ and the apostles, to proclaim the truth of this word to the nations. Lord, that we would continue to work as you have since the beginning of all things to make you known. Lord, would we, in the way that we live, in the gospel that we share, in the relationships we build, would we do those things that the people that we interact with at work, at school, on the street, in the schoolyard, that they would know who you are, that they would proclaim that you are the Lord, that they would know the work that you have done for them, and they would know you are faithful in all things. 
We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, who has indeed done the work to save our souls. We pray this in his name together. Amen.